Welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lomo. Today's interview is with tattoo artist Amy Black. Since the 2000s, Amy has been doing custom tattoos here in Richmond, Virginia, and along the way began offering realistic cosmetic tattooing to survivors of breast cancer. In this interview, we talk about how she got started, came to work with cancer survivors, what it's like running her own shop, as well as personal experience with Buddhism, and what it's like to meet the Dalai Lama. It was a great conversation, and I think you will find Amy's enthusiasm for both tattooing and helping people refreshing. Enjoy. How did you get into becoming a tattoo artist? It definitely wasn't a straight shot. Um, It took a couple of years of trying to figure out about apprenticing, um, because when I first started looking for an apprenticeship, it was back in, oh my gosh, probably the mid to late 90s. And so there weren't a lot of women tattooers around my area at all. And uh, it was, it could be pretty tough to find an apprenticeship in Ohio where I was. So there was a couple of failed attempts that happened in Ohio that just didn't work out due to conflicting interests and stuff between me and the person teaching me or things like that. Um, And I had actually given up on tattooing for about a year and a half because um, it had been really difficult to try to get into um, an apprenticeship two times before I finally got the the one that led to my current career. There was definitely a good part of my life where I'd given up, but something in me just kind of was like sort of bothering me and saying, you know, you need to give this one more shot. And if this doesn't work, then, you know, definitely take it as a sign from the universe and um, look for something else to do. So whenever I was working at the Alive Gallery with Timothy and Chris, that's whenever it had struck me because I had given up at that point and I was happy to just help run reception for them and helping like handle the art shows and all of that stuff and being basically like, you know, the errand person and all that. That was fine with me, but it, it was just, yeah, it was bothering me. And of course, you know, being around them and seeing all the amazing work they were doing was really inspiring as well. So I had discussed it with Timothy and, you know, I let him know, I was like, you know, I'm not trying to do this because we're dating or anything. In fact, I know there can be a lot of conflict and gray area there. I was like, but I really, as an artist, I feel like I want to try to pursue this. And after he thought about it for a while, because I told him, I was like, if you have a friend that you want to, you know, refer me out to, that would be fine. Like, I would be totally cool with doing that so that, you know, because it could just put a lot of strain on us if he apprenticed me. Um, But he eventually said that, no, that he had thought about it and took a couple of months and he said, no, let's just try to do this. And if it works, cool. If it doesn't, cool. And I was like, okay, that's completely up to you. And I was like, we can stop at any point in time. And so that's how it started. It was just like this sort of, you know, what kind of a little bit of a long drawn out process. But, you know, I think what it does as with any person who goes after a career like that, you know, it happens to a lot of musicians I know and, and other formats that, sometimes that's what really, really makes it for you, you know, um, to, to just keep on persevering and really, really having to fight for it. And like, seriously having some very, um, deep moments of reflection of, is this really worth it? You know, like what, why do I keep on being drawn to this whenever it's obviously not worked out? And, you know, it totally could have gone um, two dif- a bunch of different ways with apprenticing under Timothy for sure. And, but we were both super aware of that. Um, so I think that's what helped it when it happened when that third 
third time came around. And, um, you know, I, I just was extremely lucky. I really just had like a, the provenance or whatever you want to call it of good timing and the ability to work with those guys that had already established such a great reputation so that I think that that also was a backbone to the apprenticeship being successful. Had you had any like background in art? Yeah, I've been drawing and messing around um, with art stuff since I was like a toddler. My parents had always supported me doing art outside of my regular schooling from like kindergarten or something crazy, um, or even pre-kindergarten, just doodling crap and whatever. I mean, my dad secretly was, had wanted to be an artist growing up, but his father had told him no, because, you know, he grew up in, like, the pre-Mad Men era, and, like, okay. men weren't artists back then, right? Like, they were, yeah. they basically told my dad, like, no, you're going to, you know, go get a quote-unquote regular job, and you're you're not going to become an artist. And so um, I even have like one of his old paintings and stuff, but that all died with him like back when he was a teenager. And I think my mom kind of had a little bit of an inkling for it too, but they grew up in an era where artists just were not supported. And yeah, I mean, it was very much a starving artist lifestyle back then. So I think that they were excited to see that developing in me as a child and we're very into nurturing that. So that just grew into doing things like um, them finding private art lessons that I could do in middle school, whenever, um, say, the regular public school wasn't really able to keep challenging me and pushing me forward. So they started to seek out art classes that could help me learn more more difficult techniques and things like that that I might be interested in. And then that right. just kept on going through high school, you know, of getting into like independent study classes where I was focused purely on art. And then early in high school, my parents started taking me to weekend art classes at the college that I ended up going to. It's been nonstop. And if nothing else, it, it definitely wasn't focused on tattooing at all. Um, Cause no one in my immediate family, um, except for my dad, who I did a small tattoo on a couple of years back is tattooed at all. Like I don't have a, there's no history of grandparents, nothing. No one had a tattoo. Um, it was really focused on figure drawing, figure painting, nude, nude modeling, things like that. Like human anatomy was kind of like my first love. And I really got into oil painting once I was finally able to learn and investigate that in college. What was it about tattooing that you decided to go to that versus working like as a quote unquote fine artist? I was going to art college in, it was 1991, um, was my freshman year of art school. And I just quickly realized while I was in college that, um, number one, you didn't need a bachelor's of fine arts <laughs> in order to be right. an artist at least the kind that I was interested in and that there was probably thousands, if not millions of other people who were interested in doing what I was also interested in. And that was in a time that was sort of still early internet age and there weren't things that could help you self-promote yourself. Right. You know, there there was no Pinterest, there was no Instagram, there was no Facebook, there was no whatever zillion sites there are now that people can just post their artwork up and suddenly get discovered or actually make a living. Mm -hmm. You had to create art, hope to make a portfolio, and then 
hope to be able to shop it around or be discovered and have your work shown in galleries. And that was it. And that was the only way you were probably going to make a living making art. Otherwise, you were going to probably be gravitating towards painting just landscapes and still lives and I don't know, maybe portraits once in a while in a smaller market, but nobody I knew was really making a living that way. Like I just couldn't see how it was actually going to work with what I wanted to do. And I, I knew in myself, I was like, I love creating art, but at that point I didn't know if I wanted to make a living from it in the way that you right. have to, yeah. Like transition artwork into an actual job. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So once I figured that out, I was just like, I don't know, there was a there, there was a lot of things, too, in my life that had built up um, leading to going to college that I had really gravitated towards counterculture stuff and everything from music, my friends who I was hanging out with. That also had an influence on me along with what I just mentioned. So I ended up dropping out of art school my sophomore year and right before then I got my first tattoo. It was something that I was seriously just curious about. I wasn't even into like necessarily tattooing the crap out of myself back then. I was just a super curious person. And once I got the first one, there was just something about it that I absolutely loved on so many different levels. Not only did it really break out against the quote unquote traditional art mold that everybody thought you had to follow to be an artist back then. But it was also super empowering. I saw so many examples of strong females out in the music scene or even in the Japanese tattoo scene at way back then that resonated with me. You run your own shop. Um, a lot of the tattoo artists that I've met and come across, they usually work in a shop with like seven or eight other artists. You've kind of been doing your own thing for a minute. How did you come to, hey, I kind of want to be also a business owner? And that kind of just happened, honestly, because Timothy and I were working together for five years after Chris had left. Chris left mm -hmm. Richmond around 2000. And so it was just Timothy and I from 2000 till 2005. And then in 2005, Timothy decided that he wanted to go back to New York City. And so that left me with the shop. <laughs> and I had tried out working out with a couple of people that were wanted to move back to Richmond. And they mm. were all amazing. Like Brian Bruno worked with me for a little while. But mm. ultimately, after trying out a couple of people, I just got so used to working by myself. And in the space that I have, it's really small. So it can really only accommodate two people total. Um, you just you really want to hopefully vibe with someone on a pretty deep level um, versus like some of those bigger shops that have the room for seven or eight artists, which I'm not saying that they don't have that either, but you know, it's, it definitely is a, a tighter space and it can be more intimate in there. So I can imagine, and I've only been to your shop a couple of times, <laughs> but the thing I noticed about it was it has a tattoo shop vibe to it, but in a really unique way, like, like, it doesn't seem like a flash shop, if you know what I'm saying. Like, I mean, Alive was kind of like that, too. Like, I don't think it really Alive was like was, a flash yes, shop. Yes, it wasn't. No, I mean, that's what attracted me to it so much whenever I first met those guys, because Alive Gallery was open with the intention of really breaking that mold and getting as far away from the traditional tattoo shop vibe as 
as much as possible. I mean, they didn't advertise like we refused to advertise. Like, God, phone books were still a thing back then. If you want to talk about feeling ancient. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. And so like we uh, we would always be listed under art gallery like they never wanted to be listed under a tattoo shop. And, oh, like, wow. when you walked in the door, there was an art gallery in the front. It was the first tattoo shop that I can think of that I knew of, and especially in Richmond, um, if not Virginia, that, you know, you didn't walk in and see Flash. Like, you walked in, and they wanted that front lobby area to be an art space. Um, right. and, and we rotated shows out, like, once a month or something. And I always tried to look for a local artist or, you know, somebody who was doing really cool stuff. The vibe started back then, and I love that because it really spoke to the um, the fine art, you know, part of me. It's not that we didn't love or honor the traditional tattoo shops that still exist. Like, that's the meat and potatoes of the tattoo world, and I will always, like, um, have a lot of respect for those shops and what flash tattoo art and artists brought into the tattoo world. Like that's like the foundation of what I was taught as a tattooer Mm -hmm. and what the bulk of my personal tattoos are almost based off as well. Not, you know, just flash work, but that nice, bold, black line work, bold color and all that great stuff. And Timothy and Chris are both raised on that, but they were also heavily influenced by a huge um, sort of renaissance of fine artists that just started to get embedded into the tattoo scene back then. And they mm-hmm. brought with them a lot of more fine art quality, like Timothy's work, what really attracted me to his style was that I could see the painterly stuff he was doing in his light sources and his color palettes and all of that stuff. And he was bringing that into the tattoos that he was doing and a lot of other people weren't. And so, yes, the vibe, the vibe was um, always meant to be different. And Chris, I think was also, you know, inspired by that and working towards that as well. Like they were um, really looking at a lot of the stuff that was coming out of San Francisco and New York city and, you know, all these different areas that were trying to push the realm of tattooing back then. So you bring that forward to today, it was already established by them, and it just continued with me. And then once the breast cancer stuff started for the mastectomy tattooing in 2010, it pushed it even further for me, because then I really wanted to create an atmosphere in the studio that would be very... Um, welcoming to mm-hmm. that particular client who probably would never get a tattoo ever in their life. So the breast cancer uh, tattoos, um, did that start through the Pink Ink Fund or, or how exactly did, did you come into doing that work? The Pink Ink thing started after the first okay. nipple tattoo that I did in response to me doing the nipple tattoo and knowing very little about how insurance worked back then, because I don't think I had health insurance even whenever I did the first nipple tattoo. I was just like, after I did that, I was like, there's there's got to be other women out there that are going to want to come to a tattoo artist versus having to have it done at their, their doctor's office. And I have no clue how insurance is going to handle that. So it started out as a private fund. Um, right. And I had no clue it would become a charity at all. Like, I was like, hey, guys, like, I let everybody know. I was like, I'm super transparent. I'm going to start this as a private fund. If it ends up being useful, then maybe, it, you know, we take it to the next step. If it 
doesn't become useful, then I just stop it, you know, and I make sure to use the um, donations towards who any of the any other cancer survivor that I end up tattooing. But I just like I said, I just had this vibe. I'm like, somebody's going to need it. And a couple of people used it there at the beginning. But the first survivor who reached out to me, who I've always called her amazing and like one of the ballsiest women I've ever met, because she really didn't have any tattoos. And she had lost one of her breasts to cancer, had an implant put into it, and then kept her real breasts on the other side. And so she really needed a portrait of like her natural nipple onto her reconstructed nipple, which can be right. really difficult. So she had no knowledge of tattooing and lived in Richmond and just started cold calling tattoo shops, hoping that she could maybe find a, I know, like maybe find a woman and maybe find a tattooer who could help her. I mean, she has no clue how sketchy that could have went. Right. Oh my God. (laughs) That must've been a hard thing to do. I mean, tattoo shops can be intimidating just if you're, like a drunk dude walking in off the street, you know, cause you're just like, or whatever. Oh, but yeah. I cannot imagine being in that position and, and like needing this very specific thing. Wow. Yeah. There was really only like, I think me and two other women tattooing in Richmond back then. Um, Robbie okay. at Red Dragon, you remember Red Dragon tattoo, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Joey. I think this chick named Joey um, was still in town and tattooing somewhere as well. So she just really quickly got funneled my way. She had seen another tattooer up in Baltimore who was doing nipple tattoos. So she got sent my way really fast. And I'd been tattooing for 10 years by then. So I was very confident with the my materials, you know, my medium and what I was working with. Um, right. I already had the fine arts background that we discussed earlier. It was my first love, like anatomy, like loved it, like aced my anatomy classes and my human drawing classes in college. It was totally something I just adored, but didn't think I could make a career out of. So I re- it really just got put on the back burner. And this lady just pops up out of nowhere. She's like, can you make me um, a copy of my nipple on the other side? I was like, oh, yeah, we can do it. And I was really excited and super honored. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm so glad I'm going to be able to use the skill set that I you know, had been working on for the earlier part of my life. Um, at least once and to mesh that with tattooing, which I also love. Like, I was like, this is fucking amazing for lack of a better way of putting it. And then uh, we took several sessions with her because I really wanted to take my time and make sure that it turned out well. And um, she had been showing her medical team our different stages of the nipple tattoo. And by the time we finished the plastic surgeon's office that she had gotten her reconstruction done at, they had an assistant who had been doing the nipple tattoos but became very ill. They ended up with a backlog of patients. They see the final results of the nipple tattoo I do. She takes it back to them. You know, she's just like, you know, this woman is in Richmond. I'm really happy with her work. You guys have seen her work like would you do you want to do you want would you like to work with her and then I got the call from them and had a joint meeting with like seven plastic surgeons and they were like would you like to come work with us I was like sure (laughs) like so so from that point like would they just refer folks to you or would you actually go to like their premises and, and do it for the first year and a half I would go to their office and work out of one of their um offices is that more for like insurance or yeah, because um, insurance was different and they could bill the um, patient so that insurance 
would cover them. But something about insurance changed after about a year and a half. And Mm -hmm. then it was just too much for them to do it the way they had been. And so Mm -hmm. they were still, they still said I could work out of their office, but that I would basically be a private contractor and the patient would just have to pay me out of pocket and then see if their carrier would reimburse them. And so after a while, like, Honestly, like I told them, I was like, you know what, guys, like I can come to your office, but I feel way more comfortable at my studio. Like I have the lighting the way I want it. I have all all my tools there the way I want them. Because since I was using one of their offices, I was only there like once, maybe every three weeks or once a week, I think I was trying. Mm -hmm. And then someone else, like an esthetician was using the same room once I left. So it eventually just migrated, made sense to have everything migrate, to have everyone over to the, the studio instead of um, seeing them at the surgeon's office. When you first did this, were people really doing that at all? There really wasn't. Um, there was a guy named Vinny Myers who's up in Baltimore who was right. really the only other American tattoo artist I knew that was being as serious about it and working in tandem with um medical teams like I was. There might have been a couple more dotted around the U.S., but I wasn't aware of them because there wasn't really any directory or network for us to know about each other. The mastectomy tattooing was not very visible when I started, and I didn't like that because it was just a little heartbreaking to know that these women who not only had to deal with cancer have to go in and have their breasts removed and have to deal with the reconstruction results afterwards, which does not end up looking like some fancy boob job, right? Right, um, right. It's it's usually different that they were had a very limited knowledge and choice of how their nipples were going to look afterwards. So I really started pushing to publicize as much as I could the results, and that you know kind of had an effect of slowly finding about a couple of other people around the world that was doing the same service of being a regular tattoo artist and also doing the mastectomy tattoo. But there really weren't a lot. Like when I first started back in 2010, I definitely had people, women who were flying in from out of country um, because they hadn't found anyone either. Yeah. There was a lady who um, came in from Australia. I had another lady come in from like, um, I think she came in from Taiwan. Like it, it was not atypical for me to speak to people who did not live in the U.S. There's still a small amount of people that are doing this type of work, but mm. it's grown to the point where I now can feel comfortable about referring someone to an artist in Europe so they don't have to fly to America. Like there's at least a couple, right, and throughout dotted throughout different countries in, in Europe and Australia. There might be like one or two. And then America, it's grown as well. There's there's probably at least a handful of, of tattooers that I know I think are doing really great three D nipple work, um, that I would feel very confident about referring people to. Why do you why do you think it hasn't grown more? I think well, it's it's a difficult um thing. Because um, so, so the you, skill involved. It's a different skill set from, say, traditional tattooing for sure. Right. Um. You, you yeah. You have to be really comfortable with realism in general, and then whether or not you uh, are able to do that as a tattoo artist, you have to deal with scar tissue um, that not a lot of tattooers are comfortable with or have any knowledge of. 
You're also right. dealing with um, implants and other things, um, radiated skin, just things that really aren't going to be in your usual dealings with just, you know, regular non-mastectomy tattooing. But it sounds like you kind of had the perfect background for it. Yeah, I mean, I outside of ever having done mastectomy tattooing, I've always had a curiosity in a lot of things that of a medical nature. So it did feel very natural for me. Like I wanted to know about these things versus other tattooers. I don't know if they really dive that deeply into it, but I wanted to understand like what, why does radiated skin look like this? Can it be treated? And when is it tattooable? You know, or right. why does the skin in this area age differently from whenever I tattoo someone's arm and what can I do to try to adjust the tattooing so that it can age better and last longer for these mastectomy clients, like just little things like that. So you're, you're, you're actually having to learn like basically a whole new type of tattooing, like considering those I, things, those are not things you would consider that, you know, just doing a normal tattoo really. Oh, yeah. Like whenever Timothy was teaching me, like we never discussed tattooing over scarred skin. And it's it's weird, like, too, because like I know like people that have, you know, had accidents and, you know, they end up with like lots of scar tissue. And, and I remember w when I would talk to them, they would, you know, certain tattooists wouldn't be able to work on it. Some would say that it's not workable. Some some would be able to work on it. And I guess that, um, you know, some of that deviation came maybe from just the actual knowledge of the artist or maybe the artist's skill set. When you were trying to figure this stuff out, um, were you able to look at like like clinical references to see this stuff or was it just something that you had to like try? It was a little bit of um, sort of self-education. I had a, a minimal background of seeing how other tattooers had dealt with burnt skin mm -hmm. and the right. way that they went around about tattooing that stuff. Um, and since I was working with such small areas of tattooing in the beginning, I was able to sort of test out some things in small ways to see what would work, especially with that first nipple tattoo, because she had a little bit of scarring that ran across where we needed a tattooer. After you've been tattooing for long enough, you should be able to understand different skin types for sure, in my mm -hmm. opinion. And you should be able to adapt to them and understand how far you can push something, what tools you need to use, what needles you need to use and whatnot um, in certain areas per skin type in order to create the best tattoo effect. I definitely didn't have a lot of super severe, heavily scarred uh, mastectomy clients right off the bat. It started pretty small. And I did know from experience of what I was looking for as far as to how healed those scars needed to be before I tattooed over them at that point. I don't remember how I knew that, but there, yeah, there was just a couple of tricks that like, maybe, maybe I had heard um, something about how if they were darker, that there was blood close to the surface still healing them. And that I just knew that that would probably lead to a tattoo bleeding out more in um. those specific areas. Right. And then not healing up as well. So yeah, a little bit of scientific reasoning, right? Because then you're like, well, uh, you don't want to tattoo over that. You want to try to let that discoloration go away as much as you can before you tattoo over it. And then it started the journey of investigating what could help um, with scar treatment, like healing and stuff like that. Some of the things I ran into fell in my lap again from just tattooing other mastectomy clients, seeing amazing scar healing uh, on some patients who I was told would probably 
be nowhere close to being able to be tattooed in the time frame that they had had post-surgery and them going, oh, here, look, I use this product. This healed me up in no time. And I was like, whoa. Oh, wow. You know, when some people get a tattoo, like they wonder if they're going to regret it <laughs> or something like sure. that. Or, you know, yeah. they, they get a tattoo and it's like a whim. And But with this, it's 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 like you're actually helping somebody. And, you know, like if you follow your Instagram, you, you seem to do a bit of volunteering and, and kind of like championing things that help people. Was that something that you had always kind of been doing? Like, like right now you're, um, you're uh, volunteering with the COVID vaccinations. Is that something that you started doing after doing that? Or are you kind of always been trying to do things like that to help other people? I haven't really thought too far back to when I started trying to do a lot of volunteer or philanthropic work. I mean, I was raised to think of always trying to help others, but not in a sense that was any more than any other kid in middle America. You know, it right. wasn't like my, yeah, it wasn't like my parents were like missionaries to Africa or something like intense, right. you know, or like just going to Haiti, like post earthquake and really getting diving deep. Right. Like I don't have any uh, AmeriCorps uh, people or uh, Peace Corps people in my family, but I definitely, we always was inspired to give back and to um, really work on myself like many people are. And I feel like one of the biggest ways to work on yourself is to constantly try to think outside of yourself and think of how you can help others. And I mean, I, I'm, I feel really confident in saying that a lot of who I am today was affected by how my life started. And my parents are also big time like philanthropic because I, they adopted me as a baby. And so once I was, you know, able to learn about my background and where I came from and what my parents did for me and my family did for me, like that just mm -hmm. became something that I felt like I wanted to reflect out to others <clears throat> because I had been given such an opportunity and, and been so lucky in receiving what I had as, you know, an infant that I was just like, you know, you just, I, I think most people would feel that you want to naturally be able to help others find that in some way. My life started out as a Jane Doe orphan that, you know, was discovered by the orphanage, like in oh, Korea, wow. like, like I didn't have a name. Uh, they guessed my birth date. I wasn't even supposed to be adopted by my family that I have now. Like they had been, they had gone through this whole adoption process to adopt a baby from Vietnam post the Vietnam War fallout. And the only reason I ended up coming up was because the the poor Vietnam adoptees were too sick and they um, unfortunately wouldn't make it through the adoption process a lot of the time. So they shut that program down. So like, I just happened to um, be a baby girl at the right time, you know, and my parents had already started the super intensive adoption process. And the adoption agency was like, we're no longer, you know, going to continue doing adoptions from Vietnam. Would you consider adopting from another country? And they said, yes. And so instead of having to grow up as a ward of the state, probably in a pretty awful situation in Korea, I got to have all of the opportunities growing up here in America and also having like a family that treated me so much like family from day one. And my adopted family is entirely white. Like there's no other 
person of color in my family tree from as far out and back as I can look <laughs> like nobody wow. like like cousins like boyfriends or girlfriends of cousins like everybody's white um <laughs> but um but I was never treated differently like I always you know one of the small things I remember growing up is my parents and my brothers never introduced me as their adopted daughter I was always introduced as their daughter even from a little being a little kid and I never remember anyone who met us going like oh how is that you know that's Um, awesome yeah and this is back in the 70s you know yeah 80s yeah but like everyone was always like oh, nice to meet you, or oh, you know, like, that's great, or whatever. So if you, you know, you look at at all of that, just, I've probably said this before, but falling in your lap, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I I think it would would just be a disservice and a waste to not um, try to at least utilize, I don't know, at least some part of your extra time and energy to be able to, you know, give back what you feel like you've been given. Just curious, so your involvement with Buddhism, like, is that something formal thing for you, or is it, like, something that you just study on, or did I just know you post, like, a lot of stuff about, like, the Dalai Lama and this kind of thing? Yeah, so, um, quick story on that, I was raised Catholic, um, but I started to fall away from the Catholic Church around 11 years old, because there's just some things that I, conflicting things that I saw um, within the church. I'll clarify. Um, I actually believe that the core teachings of a lot of the religions speak the same and that us humans just tend to screw it up. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I was actually really just not interested in being labeled as anything. I was very spiritual. I've always been very spiritual and very curious about different cultures and their belief systems. But I really didn't want to be labeled as, oh, you're a blank or you're a blank. Um, Sure. And I had dabbled in Buddhism very minimally to the point of where I thought Buddhism was just one way, like there was only one practice. And I had tried a little bit of it and it didn't really work for me because the only things I had been exposed to back in Ohio, uh, back in the 80s and 90s, was like Zen Buddhism, which meant that you tried to sit in like a bare room and stare at the wall maybe or something right, you know right. like you just think of nothing Gary like yeah right into your mind and I mean you're you know trying to tell a kid who grew up uh on MTV and right. listen to everything from skater music to hardcore to like Slayer and all that stuff, but this is this is an amazing way to spirituality. But you just have to think of nothing. I was like, I can't. I'm trying, but I can't. So I mm. I kind of was like, well, Buddhism seems cool, but it's probably just not for me. So that was I don't know. Say back in my 20s. Well, you fast forward to um, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was around 2014, I think. And I had randomly had a friend who was friends with this woman who I saw in a show that I loved on Netflix. And it was a brand new show back then called Orange is the New Black. And she had a Facebook and she posted about being the lead singer for this like super grungy, heavy metal band. And it was a Buddhist one. And I was like, 
what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like, you don't dress like the Buddhists that I think of. You are totally like a black leather wearing, like wearing the kind of band shirts I have type of person, super like rowdy and whatever. Like, I love it, but what the hell? So anyway, that really opened up my mind to investigating Buddhism. And she was kind enough to open a lot of doors for me. So... Whereas Buddhism definitely was just um, me, like, uh, studying it and not necessarily being a formal Buddhist, I became a formal Buddhist in 2016, 15, I think it was, maybe 16. Oh, wow. And that just means that you, like, take these vows that say that, you know, you're um, now becoming Buddhist and that you're going to keep all of these, like, more, like, ethic, moral, you know, ideas intact. Like the five um, precepts and yes, that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. If you have, yeah. So um, there, the the taking refuge is very simple. Like you don't, I don't even know if you go that heavy. And you can take refuge with almost any Buddhist. It doesn't matter if it's Zen Buddhist or whatever. Like it's pretty standard across the board. And it just says that you're going to keep in mind like the, what's called the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I did that not only because of finding about out about Tibetan Buddhism, which is an, was an entirely mind-blowing world that I had no clue existed, but was so in line with a lot of thought patterns that I had uh, been evolving since I was younger, mm-hmm. but also answered a lot of difficult questions I've been grappling with and challenged me on a much deeper level than any other culture um, or philosophy that I had run into. So with that, what is what is it about that about Tibetan Buddhism that is so different from like Zen Buddhism or something like that? Um, so it can be a little confusing when you try to explain the different um, schools of Buddhism. When I try to talk about it um, to people who might not know anything about Buddhism, for instance, all Buddhism still kind of goes back to the same core lesson, first of all. And then from that core lesson, there has spawned a ton of different variations of it, depending upon what the person needs who is trying to learn about it. So Zen Buddhism really is not necessarily that different from Tibetan Buddhism at its core. However, the trappings around it, I guess would be the way to say it, mm-hmm. are going to differ quite a lot. Like Zen Buddhism is going to potentially have different rituals and exercises and practices for sure. And they might focus on a different part of certain Buddhist doctrines than Tibetan Buddhism does. Tibetan Buddhism is also split into, I think it's five different schools. And they all focus on slightly different areas in Buddhist doctrines. What attracted me to Tibetan Buddhism versus Zen Buddhism is that Tibetan Buddhism is very investigative. It, they really, really are all about debating and using a ton of scientific logic. Right, right. Yeah. Because I mean, I've read like the Dalai, because the Dalai Lama is Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm reading his books, like he's, he constantly says like, this is a theory that we've had for 
many, many years, and it's been recently, you know, backed up by science. And like, it's interesting because it's very, it is very investigative, and it's also like challenging and contemplative. And at least in the the work that I've read of his. Oh yes, yes. So when, how did your life change when you uh, became a Buddhist? I would say that my friend who I discussed that opened the door for me, Jessica. She changed my life because I felt I had honestly felt kind of alone for a long time mm-hmm. um, because I wasn't talking to other Buddhists, but mm-hmm. I wasn't and I was investigating other religions and cultures, but I wasn't finding one that really felt like it spoke to me and said, oh, this is your tribe or however you want to say it. I don't know how to say it. And not that I specifically needed that even, honestly, because I'd been bouncing around so much and I was used to being kind of like a floater. I was fine with that. In fact, I was like, that felt really normal to me because I always felt like I wasn't really bound by a lot of stereotypes because my life started out as being a floater, right? Like. I still, I'll never know my real birth date, you know, like I don't get to do my fancy star chart or anything like some of my other friends do. Um, everything was guessed. But um, so mm-hmm. whenever I started talking to Jessica, there was just so many things um, that I started to discover from different um, Buddhist teachings and books that she recommended that I was either like, yes, like this makes so much sense to me or holy crap, I have been thinking this way or agreeing with these types of things for so long and I and I had no one else to talk to about them. So that was pretty groundbreaking for me. And to find other people with common ground was really thrilling. And then I can't remember exactly how it happened. I think I met His Holiness after I took my refuge vows. I'm almost positive. I'll have to look back at that. But it pretty much, like, I always say at this point in my life that I realized I would be possibly the dumbest person in the world if I said I wasn't Buddhist after I got to meet the Dalai Lama. Yeah, (laughs) wow. I was was like, that would be pretty dumb, Amy. (laughs) Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I don't know shit, right? Like, I I know very little of the entire universe. Like, who knows? Like, I always approach the idea of a god. I was like, who mm-hmm. knows that they exist? We're not going to find out until we die, right? And it didn't make me discount that there might be a god, but I also mm-hmm. wasn't trying to clamp on to it, you know, to be like, this is it. And there's a guy in the sky and there's a devil down below with a pitchfork. Like, you know, I was just open. So when that happened for me and we had that first meeting and then another one and another one, which I became Buddhist before I met him after that, I was just like, Amy, (laughs) 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 this is, if you, if you try to say that you aren't, you know, possibly Buddhist after this, that's probably pretty stupid. <laughs> and I just got to ask, what was that like meeting him? It was, it was probably most nerve wracking before it happened because I thought it'd be the only time we'd meet. And I understood the gravity of that. Like, what would you say or ask to the right. Dalai Lama if you were about to meet him, Gary, and it might, you might get three minutes, who knows? What would you ask him? What would you do? <laughs> 
I mean, I'd probably ask him, um, <laughs> how does, uh, how does being a monk work with the middle pass? <laughs> I don't know. Um, um, and that's a good question. No, I, I, I've seen that question asked before. It's funny because I've been thinking about it and I'm actually funny. Actually, on Brahma about it, but I, you know, it, that, that has to be crazy. I always think about stuff like that in terms of like, what if I got to meet Obama? Cause I just love Obama, but like, <laughs> uh, I would cry. I would probably cry and I would be like a mess. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, because I would just be like, Oh my God, I miss you so much. <laughs> like I couldn't and, and that's even. Gotta, that's going to be amazing yeah. too, to be those people because you know, you live, you know, you realize you live in this world full of intelligent human beings, but every time you meet them, they're just crying and, forgetting <laughs> what they have to say. So yes, it was like anxiety sort of not to the point of being crippling, but just wanting to really make the most of this precious moment that I mm-hmm. might have with him. And when we finally met him, he was so, I don't know, maybe to me, he just seemed very normal, but he was so normal that it, that spoke more volumes to me than anything that's awesome that's kind of like the thing that happens with punk rock is like like one of the things that was most appealing to me about that was that you you know you meet these bands and there was just no pretension yeah like like it was like this level thing and i think that's one of the things that was inspiring me about the Dalai Lama is to know that like he gets angry just like everyone else like he's a human being Yep. But it's because of his practice that he lives like this instead of just going nuts and breaking stuff when he gets angry or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, the fact that you're meeting what I could very honestly say, regardless of my um, meetings with him mm-hmm. and being Buddhist, he's one of the most well-known people and most important people on the planet. And, he and really that, is. That is amazing too, considering how small Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism specifically is in larger culture, you know, to oh, have him yeah, right. regarded as the same level. I mean, cause even among people that, you know, like, like among like middle America Christians or something like that, they know who the Dalai Lama is and respect him yes. usually in opinion. <laughs> it's yes. kind of odd, you know, that he yes. he's actually probably respected more than the Pope is. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But yes. Like, um, so just to know that you're meeting someone who's so well regarded on the entire planet Earth and to be able to feel so on par that you're just with another fellow human being was, I don't know, there's not really a great way to describe it. It was like, of course it was humbling and it was such an amazing experience of just that alone. I think it just really, the more that I know about him and about Buddhism, it just continues to speak about the the things that he symbolizes and the lessons that he teaches just by existing that have so many layers to it. It almost seems like it would empower you as a human being almost like in, in in a way of like, like it would 
make being a human being seem possibly more powerful to see a human being representing what being a good human being can be like right there. Like powerful how? Like, like powerful in your, and in, in the possibilities of each one of us almost like, like yeah, in that his example makes us feel like maybe there's more that each of us can do because he's really not different than us. Yes. I felt basically that's what I felt came through definitely from the first time of meeting him because I've been around other people like celebrities and, you know, musicians and stuff who are really big. And like some of them I've definitely gotten starstruck from. Um, Mm. And not saying that I didn't sort of have some kind of like, obviously before we possibly met, I was just like, Oh my God, what am I going to do if I have a chance to speak to him? Like I want to make sure that it counts, but he was so humble just I'm just a person. I'm just like you, you know, and we get so caught up in a lot of delusions that we tend to have as humans about how we perceive others and how we perceive ourselves. And he constantly tries to break down those barriers. And he's like, yes, I understand. Like I have a lot of responsibility as a spiritual leader. And I know that a lot of people look up to me and that I um, have, I'm like a treasure trove of all this wisdom. But he also in the same breath tries to remind us exactly what you've been saying. He's just like, I am just a human being like the rest of you. That, that just is because amazing. I, yeah. Yeah. And just because I do have all these responsibilities and these things going on, It doesn't make me different from you, and he keeps on trying to do that. And that concludes my interview with Amy Black. You can check out Amy's work on Instagram by following Amy Black Tattoos. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora, as well as most podcast apps, and our website, VariousThingsPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.